I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Great British summertime is throwing us its customary mix of sunshine and showers and I'm surrounded by plant lovers and aromatic summer blooms. We can hear the trickle of the fountains along the canal to our right and I can just make out the top of the palace in the distance. We're at the 30th anniversary of the Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Joining me once again to guide us through the festival today is Jenny Lavon, our show's editor. Hi Jenny. Hi Gareth, it's great to be back on the pod. This year's Hampton Court is looking better than ever. We've got a magnificent floral marquee filled with displays from over 80 nurseries, a festival of roses boasting several exciting new cultivars, models of allotment growing, creative show gardens and star-studded talks all week long, to name but a few of the features that make this festival an annual fave among gardeners. And this week we're bringing you the highlights. We're chatting with imaginative garden designers like Joe Thompson and Zoe Claymore. And we're taking you inside the Floral Marquee to get advice from some of the UK's best nurseries. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. And me, Jenny Lavelle. There's been quite a shift in recent years, moving from more formal, stately designs to ones that are practical and put sustainability at the forefront. We've definitely come a long way from the early 80s when Chris Baines, a recent podcast guest, created quite a stir by debuting a wildlife-friendly garden at Chelsea. And in that vein, this year at Hampton, Joe Thompson and Kate Bradbury have designed the RHS Wildlife Garden, which helps our mammals, bugs and bird life find food, water and shelter. We caught up with Joe ahead of the show to hear exactly how they achieved it. So this year I'm creating the RHS Wildlife Garden at Hampton Court and it was inspired by a series of places that I saw at the back of allotments, at the back of gardens. They're kind of public spaces that are full of potential but that aren't used and I really wanted to create a space that was for everybody, that doesn't cost very much to create and that also everyone has access to, as I really do believe that everyone has a right to access green space. So the garden is a a tree-lined space really and what goes through it is this idea of a disused railway track and it's the kind of you know the most industrial of 
looking areas in a sense but what I wanted to do is kind of make that more beautiful and make it more friendly to wildlife this is the RHS wildlife garden and so we've got trees we've got found objects there are railway tracks there are pieces of machinery and amongst all these these elements there are planting associations there are groups of plantings there are wildlife habitats there are dead hedges all sorts of elements that people can get ideas from and take home with them and reproduce them in the, in their own spaces whether it's their own gardens that they might be reproducing these ideas in or even you know one of these found spaces of which there's so many around in in this country some of the plants that benefit wildlife include a lot of the trees and the shrubs so we've got crutagus we've got betula pendula there is sambucus nigra which is elder corallus avalana hazel viburnum so we've got native and near native trees and shrubs We've also got buddleia, good old buddleia, which, as we know, you know, the butterflies love. There are herbs such as oregonum, wild marjoram, and also achillea. So all of those things are good for butterflies, actually. And then a few other of the key plants that we've got are aronia, melanocarpa, which has berries, which are really good for browsing birds and mammals. We've also got a rose in there, which may come as a bit of a surprise. We've got rosa ballerina there, which is a, a lovely repeat flowering rose with single flowers. And these single flowers are the thing that we need to look for when we're looking for plants that are best for pollinators, because they can get into those single flowers much more easily than they can a really sort of full flower. So in this garden, beyond the plants, there are other features which benefit wildlife. We've got habitats, for example, which don't necessarily need to be untidy piles of sticks and stones. We can have those, but we can also have things that are visually interesting and sculptural. So we've created habitat tripods. We've got stone piles and log walls that provide the nooks and crannies that insects really love to get into. And these are really easy to create. We also need water in a garden that's going to attract wildlife. So this water feature is going to be really simple. It's kind of just a sort of dish in the landscape there, which you notice as you walk by. Back in 2019, I created the BBC Spring Watch Garden with the RHS at Hampton Court. And in a way, we see this garden as a kind of continuation of, of the ideas that I was introducing there and it was really exciting to talk about things like the benefits of long grass and leaving your grass to grow rather than cut it having clover lawns and and actually you know as I said that was sort of 2019 and things have really moved on since then and one of my big ideas then which I wanted to bring back now was this idea that a wildlife garden does not need to be that untidy messy garden that comes to a lot of people's minds when I as a designer I talk about attracting wildlife or having wildlife corners and people do jump to this idea of kind of like weeds and mess and what we're trying to show is that log piles can be beautiful you know dead wood dead hedges almost can be beautiful and sculptural and there, there will be looser untidier parts of the garden in sort of nooks that you don't see straight away but there will also be groupings of 
beautiful flowering plants that, as well as benefiting the pollinators, the, the wildlife, you know, everything there, is also going to be sort of visually benefiting to us as the custodians of this space. So something for everyone, I'd say. So we're here by the RHS Wildlife Garden, sheltering from the rain under one of Hampton Court's beautiful historic lime trees. And I'm with Joe Thompson, the designer of the garden. Hello. So Joe, how are you feeling now it's finished? Delighted, relieved, all those usual feelings that you have when you finish this garden that you've been thinking about for months and brought it into reality. And I'm really pleased with it because it demonstrates all the things that I had in mind as far as obviously creating this kind of this magnet for wildlife and it really is buzzing with wildlife at the moment. There are butterflies there, there are bees, there are all, all sorts of things going on. It was absolutely remarkable. When I first got to the garden, I saw you've got the botonica. Is it Hummelo the variety? Yes. So it's a cultivated variety of a native wildflower called betony. And it's covered in these small skipper butterflies. I've never seen so many. It's just, it's a real testament to the wildlife value of the space. Absolutely. I mean, that particular plant, that along with verbena, Hastata and an anthemis have been a skipper magnet. They all hang, you know, they've been hanging out on those plants since they arrived. It's like, you know, the word went round, obviously. And I keep thinking there'll be nothing left for them, you know, in terms of pollen and everything. But they are, it's really great. And it just shows, you know, what introducing a few ornamental varieties can do within your garden. You know, you can really increase the biodiversity by choosing carefully some of those ornamental varieties of different shapes with flowers of different shapes. Fantastic. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Gareth. Here at Hampton, we're amongst the top growers in the UK. Earlier, we had a wander through the floral marquee to speak to them about their amazing range of plants on display. My name is Paul Dibley. I'm from Dibley's Nurseries. We specialise in houseplants. We have streptocarpus, which is one of the things we mainly grow, and we're very well known for those. But we also have lots of other unusual houseplants as well, so petrocosmias, kimenes, begonias, coleus. So things that people probably remember from the dim and distant past, but don't grow very often these days. Streptocarpus are probably the easiest flowering houseplants you'll get. So they flower from the spring right through to the autumn, so a good six months of the year. Some varieties like Crystal Ice will flower 12 months of the year, in fact, in the right position. So they just keep on, keep on coming and coming, and they just last year after year. Falling Stars is probably my favourite variety. So it's a very small flower, but you'll find that the inflorescences will have, you know, there'll be hundreds of flowers on them. So they just make an amazing spectacle. Don't overwater streptocarpus, that's not an unusual thing for houseplants, but also they're so easy for leaf cuttings as well. So you can take an entire fresh leaf from the centre of the plant, stick it into water or into maybe a mixture of compost and vermiculite, and it'll grow a little plant that's from the base of it. My name is Tim Penrose and I own Bowden's Nursery, which started as a small hostel nursery, and we now own four British iconic nurseries that just concentrate on one plant. And this is our fern stand, we bought the award-winning business of Martin Rickard's ferns. Martin was a legend at Chelsea Flower Show. He had 10 golds in a row. And we've continued the theme with ferns. But because it's the 150th anniversary of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, that iconic novel, we decided to have a hot air balloon basket land. And we, thankfully, we've also got Phileas Fogg's uh, original uh, luggage there, which is quite amazing, uh, quite extraordinary. But it blends in nicely with the ferns. It gives a different bit of structure, a bit of texture and it's always nice to have something to talk about. So this, so this is us at Hampton Court. 
my wife, who is the hosta grower, she says that ferns are all just green, but I say they're all very different types of green. And the textures, you go from a magnificent, huge Dixonia antarctica with huge, enormous fronds uh, to a very small adiantum with leaves that look like they wouldn't survive a winter, but they're totally hardy. They're fun because they're not flowering plants, of course. They, they just spread by spore. And I find them very interesting. There's something like 20,000 species, species of ferns, before you even start getting into the varieties. And um, it, it's something that I, that I enjoy. I enjoy looking at ferns. I enjoy building stands with ferns. And now I've got my children with me. They're making it a lot easier. So ferns generally don't want to dry out. There are ferns that will do really well in dry shade. If people are going to buy ferns, I would always say try and buy a fern with an AGM, an Award of Garden Merit, because they, they tend to be easier. Uh, the Dryopterous species are a lot easier and they'll do very well in dry shade, but they really only want some water to grow and they'll give you pleasure for many, many years. I mean, some of the, the ferns like the Polysticum polyblethrum, the green one on the corner there, the Japanese tassel fern, it's got an water garden merit, it's easy, it will be evergreen in your garden. Some of them look a bit scruffy in the winter, so they might be wintergreen, but uh, ferns, I think, are making a bit of a comeback, but then I would say that. My name's Dave Tite. Now, Matthew's the owner, Matthew Soper and he worked his socks off this week to prepare this display. It's a single genus display, and the plant in front of you here, Saracenia minor, that particular plant was a seed that was sown in 1982. So when you're looking at them, you've got plants ranging from over 40 years to plants that we bred eight years ago that are making their first appearance. So if you take this Saracenia purpurea, it's a very dense clump of tiny little pictures. This particular plant does have bigger forms, but this one we've chosen because it's really compact and colorful, lots of veining, and it uses a digestive system different to most of them. It uses bacteria. So it will ensnare, drown the insect, the bacteria that lives within the cups, which collect rainwater because they're open. The bacteria breaks down the dead corpses of these poor little winged creatures, and the plant benefits from the detritus of that interaction. Whereas the Saracenias, the tall ones, Rubricorpora, this particular one, it's a, nearly a metre tall. Deep, deep red colour. Beautiful veining on the lid. And that's what attracts the insects, the lid and the throat, because it produces a copious amount of nectar. And that nectar is a bit of an intoxicant and it attracts the insects. We've got the insects queuing up as you look. I mean, even now they're all over the plants. There's one there. The plants themselves are very, very easy to grow. They must have dormancy in the winter. So much like your hostas, you will have to get it outside, whether it be in an unheated conservatory, an unheated porch, just outside in the garden. They make good pond marginals because they're wetland plants from North America, which means that you, when you're growing them, you have to stand them in water. And it has to be rainwater because tap water will eventually kill them. For me as a gardener, it's just the most amazing thing having all of these nurseries in the same place because you can talk to the people who spend their lives growing these plants and it really gives you the best chance of success with the absolute widest range of plants you can imagine.
In my opinion, one of the great things about Hampton Court is the Get Started Gardens. Gardens created in small areas that give us cheap, practical and innovative ideas for creating dynamic green spaces with whatever land we've got. One of the most anticipated of these gardens is the Renters Retreat funded by the Wildlife Trusts. This garden is chock full of solutions for how you can grow while you rent. I caught up with designer Zoe Claymore earlier today. So we're with Zoe Claymore, designer of the Wildlife Trust's Renters Retreat, and we're on her garden. Hello, Zoe. Congratulations on your garden. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, well, I can't quite believe it. This morning's been a bit insane. Um, you know, got the gold, and then they came around and gave me best for get started. I was a bit, Absolutely. bit, bit <laughs> Very well deserved. Can you oh. tell us a little bit about the garden? Oh, well, oh gosh, this garden for me has been a passion project for about two years. Ever since I was here two years ago at Hampton when I just started my career change and I was doing an allotment bed design and it was the first year the Get Started Gardens were here and you know Get Started Gardens at Hampton they're all about getting people started, getting people into gardening and over the whole week I was just thinking hmm, what was my barriers into getting gardening and really you know, growing this interest into a passion that's sort of borderline obsession now but I realised it was the fact that I had been a renter for so long and then I was thinking, okay, I was renting for so long, but hang on, what was the barrier? Was it was it actually there or was it in my head? And I realised a lot of it was sort of psychological. You know, I think when you rent, you, you struggle because you're like, oh, can I even put a piece of, you know, can I put a painting up on the wall? Can I do something, you know, what, what, how will the language get mm. upset? And I think people sort of have that same feeling towards the garden and they don't necessarily do things, which is certainly how I felt. And I used to do research and statistics and I thought, you know, let's, let's go find out what, what, what's going on out there. And oh my goodness, I mean, like, come on, one in three people in England rent. One in two in major cities like London, like over half of houses in, in London are rented. And like, there are eight million rented households and over seven million of them have access to outdoor space. There's loads of people that rent. This is a huge, huge issue that we're not addressing. And I sort of realised that, yeah, I wasn't alone. <laughs> many people and you know that combined along with a sort of a real drive to want to get people into gardening because I mean gardening for me has been transformative and life-changing meant I needed to do this I really needed to do this project so yeah. so that's the inspiration of the garden yeah can you just talk us through the garden the features that you've included oh, in the design well so it's based on a courtyard that I actually used to rent when I was 24 and it's kind of a bit of like a homage and hug to my younger self with like all the knowledge I know now and you know what I like to say about this garden is it's like a container garden on steroids okay we have raised beds that can flat pack and go down through a house so that enables you to you know grow a lot more than people think they could do and because it's flat packable it's modular it can go through your home and if you move to property you, you could then you know reconfigure it in a different way we have a hugel culture mound i can never no quite sure say, but you know, german hill culture but again a permaculture technique that can be made as small or as big as you want it's basically a beautifully decomposing log pile fantastic for insects but also a sort of a lower investment option and then obviously we have lots of reclaimed pots that you can see all around the place also in the corner over there there is I call it my sustainability station we have a compost bin and the only concession we've imagined for this garden which is a courtyard so imagine your ubiquitous terraced rendered walled concrete floor absolutely nothing in a courtyard in a drain pipe is the fact that the landlord has given us a water diverter and i think if any landlord like think about it that's one thing you can do to support your tenants and it's one thing you can do to support nature 
There's loads of features that you're describing yeah. there, loads, but it's a soft and beautiful garden. Oh, How did you, you choose those plants? <laughs> those plants, they're so beautiful. Which ones have you chosen? Okay, well, the, the planting palette, it, we have gone round the houses with that because it was really, really important to me and important to my sponsor, the Wildlife Trust, to do a garden that was real and do a garden that was genuinely a multi-season garden. We've got soccer cocker in there, we've got hellebores for winter, you know, we've got euphorbia in the spring and we'd put in a few more spring bulbs. And, you know, we've got beautiful asters for the autumn and then obviously got our stonkingly lovely tartars, the anemones, and the geranium nodosum. Like, what we're looking at with this garden, there were so many criteria. We were like, okay, we need plants that are good for novice gardeners. So, a wolf gardening merit list was pulled up. Then we need plants that are great for wildlife. Okay, so there's the good plants for pollinators. Let's also think about other plants, you know, for invertebrates and other things. And then it's like, okay, people are renting. So we need to choose plants that can take a good beating. You know, stuff that you can chop up, stuff that you can take with you. Maybe you start off with one fern and you propagate it and, you know, five years' time you have hundreds. So we were thinking about all those things and things that people can go to their local garden centre and pick up. So that was all really important. Everything in your garden is achievable and there's so many ideas. But mm. you're a renter, you've moved into this bare courtyard. Yes. What's the first thing you do? Measure it. <laughs> Find out the actual size of your space, as I would if I designed any space. Measure your space. How big is it? Because there's no point getting something that doesn't fit. Then the next thing to do is to work out its aspect. Is it north, south, east, west? How's the light fall? Because then you need to start thinking about okay, if you want to put plants in it, what plants are going to survive? And then start to think about, okay, what is it that you want to do? How do you want to use your space? You know, are you in a shared housing with, with five other people and you want to have a social space? Are you a family that want your kids to be able to do something? Are you a more elderly couple that actually, you know, you, you want the place for quiet contemplation? And so you think about your use of your space. And then, you know, if you're a renter, some practical things to do with, okay, first things first, why not get yourself a compost bin and get yourself a planter? So dream slightly bigger than a container, maybe go for a raised bed if you can. And choose something that can be flat packable, that can break down. So choose, I would suggest more of a, a metal bed than a wood one because they will be dismantled and go back together much more easily. And then do some research for plants. Fantastic. Talk yeah. about renting and yeah. enabling what people can do when they rent. What, mm -hmm. what can and what maybe should landlords be doing to make it easier for renters to have a garden? Well, this is a conversation we need to have, and this is like one of the big reasons to do this garden was to provoke this conversation because, you know, going back to my whole like, can you even put a painting on a wall question, we need to have conversations about how landlords and tenants can work together because it's not just about tenants and mental health, it's about urban biodiversity. If we've got one or two people in larger cities or renters, there's no way we're going to make a massive dent in our urban biodiversity until we incorporate and encapsulate this massive group of people. So I feel that. If you're a landlord and you're offering a fully furnished house, you should also be offering a fully furnished garden. If you're offering cutlery in the house, you should be offering gardening tools. And think about those things and just thinking how you can um, support your tenants. I've spoken to some landlords actually in this process and one of their big fears that it seems to come up quite commonly is they're worried that you know if they allow their tenants more free reign that they're going to depreciate their assets. And I would say that maybe if you're a landlord and you're nervous, like if you're nervous with anything in life, start small. So why not give your tenants a bed, a raised bed that's containable and let them have a go and they can garden in that and they can take the plants over with them when they go. So that's their bed and, and that's a start. And then maybe, you know, if they look good and you're trusting them, they, maybe, you know, encourage them to do more. But it should be a conversation. Thanks there to Zoe. 
If you'd like more information on this, do check out How to Garden While You Rent, written by our very own Wisley curator, Matthew Pottage. So Jenny, having seen the Garden Missouri, what were some of the things that really stood out to you? I think it's how she's packed so many ideas into such a small space, yet when you're in the garden, it feels like an open space. It feels like a big garden, which is such a clever design. And just little things, details like the fact that everything in that garden has been brought through a door. It's been designed to be brought through a front door. And that's just so clever. When you see the garden, you'll be like, how? <laughs> She's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful garden. Yeah, I think it's really clever how you have something that's so so intricate and complex, but doesn't feel overcrowded, doesn't feel overly busy. It's just a lovely kind of soothing design and something that, you know, I'd, I'd love to have that as my garden, wouldn't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's definitely bits that I can take home. I will be stealing a lot of her ideas from that garden. The way she's thought about how you travel through the garden, the views in the garden. She's thought about how you feel when you use the garden. It's really clever. It's really inspiring. And speaking of inspiration, we can't do a Hampton Court Palace show without mentioning one of the staples of the festival, roses. Guy Barter, RHS Chief Horticulturist and podcast co-host, stopped by several of the colourful rose displays to get the inside scoop. Well, we're here in Hampton Court Festival 2023 and we're standing in the rose tent and there's a lovely scent of roses on the air and we have the very great pleasure of standing in front of the lovely, beautiful and fragrant rose stand of David Austin Roses and we're speaking to Kirsty Fleetwood. Good afternoon, Kirsty. Good afternoon, thank you for coming to speak to us. We're delighted to be here in the uh, Rose Festival tent as always with our new launch for the 2023. Well, let's leap right in and ask you about your new launch for 2023. Does this rose have a name or is it still secret? It's not secret anymore. This rose does have a name. We launched Penelope Lively at nine o'clock this morning. It's our second rose variety launch for 2023, following the success of our Danahue Rose at Chelsea Flower Show earlier this year. Penelope Lively is is named after the author, the British award-winning author, Penelope Lively herself, who was on the stand this morning with David to kind of unveil the rose we've named after her. It's a beautiful, mid-pink, gorgeously fragrant rose. This is an amazing rose, isn't it? It's got features of the old-fashioned roses, all cabbagey-like in the middle, and it seems to open to a more intense pink before fading. It's got really dark green glossy leaves and this beautiful popping pink colour. It's described as a mid-pink, but you're right, that colour changes over time as it opens further. Really deep bud, and then opens up into this gorgeous kind of candy colour at the end. How would you include that in your garden? She's a very versatile rose. You can put her in borders, mixed borders or rose borders. She's quite happy in shady areas. She's also got very few thorns, actually, so she's nice for cutting. She's got quite a long, straight stem, so you can see there in the bud vases on the stand that she looks beautiful cut. And she's quite big as well. She gets to around four foot high and about three foot wide after around three years of growth. And do you have a favourite rose on this stand, Kirsty? One of my absolute favourites is Gabriel Oak which I'm sure you'll recognise the name, which is part of Far From The Madden Crowd. It's a beautiful, really dark pink. I like the dark pink, bright roses. It smells great, and again, the foliage is really lovely. So I'd say that today on this stand is one of my favourites. But if you see an even more beautiful rose tomorrow, you'll change your allegiance like a drop of a hat. (laughs) 
I love them all, what can I say? One of my personal favourites is Queen of Sweden. I really like the way that she stands so soldier-like and tall with a really pale pink, beautiful cup as her bloom. So I think that's one of my favourites too. Well, thank you so much for sparing the time, Kirsty. I know you're very, very busy and your stand is heavily populated, but thank you so much for telling us all about roses. Thanks, Guy. Thank you so much for coming to chat to us. Now we're standing in front of the Harkness Roses stand, another stand covered in gorgeous roses, and we're lucky enough to be able to ask about these roses, and we can ask Philip Harkness. Hello, Philip. Thanks for talking to us. Pleasure, Guy. Can you tell us a bit about your display here, how you put it together and what roses you chose? Yeah, certainly. As is our want when we're breeding and, and exhibiting roses, I've got a complete mixture. So we've got single ones with five petals, which are wonderful for the beneficial insects and the bees. And we've got ones with complex flowers from five petals up to 90, 100. Of all these lovely roses on your stand, do you have any favourites? I breed all these roses and, and to have a favourite rose would be akin to having a favourite child and I'm just not capable of that. It would be quite difficult to have a favourite rose when you're breeding roses because you'd always be trying to breed one to look like your favourite, I should imagine. And then, then you have too many of the same. Yeah, yeah so, so maybe I should start breeding ones I don't like. <laughs> yes, that's a lovely rose at the end, the single pink. Ah, this morning, that's one that's in the Rosa Persica line, so it's got the red eye which came from Halfemia Persica. This one is absolutely gorgeous. It has an abundance of flowers. It makes a rounded shrub when it's mature. It will flower from the ground upwards. It will be two and a half to three feet, or should I say 90 centimetres wide, 60, 70 centimetres high, and just festooned with flowers. It's, it's, It's absolutely stunning. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, the Persica roses seem quite a new thing. Have they been around for many years, or is it something that's caught on recently? They originate from Halfemia Persica, which is a wild rose found in Iran. It grows in the desert, where it gets high daytime temperatures down to low temperatures at night. My father started breeding with that in the late 1960s, early 70s, for its hardiness. We were looking at things that could cope with a difficult climate. It didn't give us what we were looking for, for hardiness and and coping with different climates. But there are so many of these ones now that have got the red eye, which have come from our our original breeding. And they're they're bred now in in Belgium, Holland, UK, States, all over the world. Are there other roses that have risen in popularity in recent years? I think we're at a fascinating moment as far as Rose is concerned. Certainly the biggest rise in popularity has been the single five-petaled ones, which are beneficial for insects. But the other thing we have is a very strange situation. Um, If we get a customer who comes to us and says, I want something old-fashioned, I don't know what they mean, and different people mean different things. Some people by old-fashioned mean a hybrid tea that their parents or grandparents had in their gardens in the 60s or 70s. Some people mean something that is historic and is replicating the roses that were around in Victorian times. But when someone says something old-fashioned, you have to establish what they think old-fashioned really is. And I suppose that some people want the old-fashioned kind of look of the roses that were in Victorian times that uh, Josephine planted in her garden in Paris and they don't want all the hassle that comes with it of only flowering once and having to fight off disease and things. Disease is absolutely key. 
1994, which is quite a long time ago now, nearly 30 years, I made a decision that we would stop using all fungicides in our glaze bleeding programme and our trials. And because of that, we have focused very much on disease resistance or even the ability of the plant to cope with and live with and overcome disease. Because I cannot stand here ever and say this rose will be 100% disease resistant. You can't say that. Grow it under stress and it will get disease. Just the same as you or me. So you and your you and your rose breeders go out into the fields, you identify the ones that are least affected and you breed from those. Absolutely. You use those and you find out how you get that disease resistant gene into the colours you want, the flower shapes you want, the perfume you, that we want, and we have to get all of the characteristics melded together. And life and nature are not perfect. Everything in life is a bit of compromise. If you get 80% of what you're looking for, I think you're doing well. Because, because the one thing I don't want to do, I had this discussion with Rose Breeder here, with David Austin earlier today, the one thing we don't think we could ever breed is the perfect rose, because there's no such thing. Well, I certainly won't disagree with that. Thank you very much, Philip, for sparing your time and speaking to us. It's been really informative. It's an absolute pleasure, Guy, and thank you. Thank you, Guy, for taking us along with you. Well, what a show it's been. So what have been some of your highlights, Jenny? The gardens have really shone for me, I think, at Hampton. The features were amazing. Carol Klein's garden just took my breath away. What an incredible design, those beautiful purples so much wildlife crawling all over her garden it was alive it literally and was buzzing yeah, wasn't it, it was really nuts. Was. and to go from that beautiful seating area through a woodland and then into this productive veg patch so ambitious and she really pulled it off absolutely it was just so seamlessly woven between all the different areas and that's something that i've picked up on in some of the other gardens for example the america's wild garden you had all those different areas like representing say a prairie part of the united states and then an arid part and then a wooded part and they all just they just flowed together didn't they it's such the beauty of hampton court that you can walk through the gardens walking through the wildlife garden was beautiful walking through also like you say the america's wild garden what an achievement and then Tom Massey's garden, you're really taken on a journey and that is a literal book coming to life. I found that breathtaking. I think we should go to Tom Massey's and go and take some notes. Let's go steal some of his plants now. Let's go <laughs> get some of that time. Well, that's about it for today. If you aren't able to make it down to Hampton Court in person, you can still follow along from home. The BBC have a number of TV programmes covering the show and you can find details and wonderful photos of all the gardens and exhibitions, plant lists and competitions on our website at rhs.org.uk forward slash Hampton. And before you go, a few congratulations are in order. It was just announced that Inspired Earth Design won Best in Show for their America's Wild Garden and Zoe Claymore won Best Guest Started Garden for her garden, the Wildlife Trust's Renters Retreat. That's all for now. So from me, Gareth Richards. And me, Jenny Laville. Goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.